zero. It's 99 on the auto mechanics aptitude test. And 12 on the philosophy test. I'm going to tell them that Larry. your kazoo. How is it everything I say has, just the way I say it, makes it sound vaguely like it shouldn't be said? Why is that? I mean, out loud, that is. That's an inflection problem. <laughs> a young man from his eyes. Oh, if you'd like to know the rest of that limerick, that's a fantastically great limerick. And also, I will include the uh, guitar fingering for it. It's a, it's a great limerick. Uh, send your name and address to two different sizes. Care of W-O-R. And uh, you must be over 21. And you must prove that you are a serious student of physical anthropology. And we make sure that you get plain seal wrapper, of course. No one will know. Oh, I'll tell you, it's, it's, getting, it's getting out of hand. It's just completely getting out of hand. Did you see this letter to Abby? I mean, it says so much. And uh, before we read this letter to Abby, I'm just going to have to give a disclaimer here. We... Uh, don't, uh, well, we just don't want any misunderstandings out there. So, uh, uh, <laughs> I just warn you that there's a dial on your radio, and right down that dial, a couple of notches, they're playing wonderful selections from great classics of film music of 1940. I think you'd prefer that. Played on a harmonica with an echo chamber. Very, very good with banjo accompaniment. Uh, here is a letter to Abby, and it just, I'll tell you, it just says, and I'm putting this in my vast file of dynamic trivia, so that 2,000 years from now, when they dig among the rubble, they'll find my little stainless steel safe deposit box that I bought at Woolworth, and, uh, you know, for safe papers and all that stuff, and they'll know how it was. Dear Abby, if this letter makes sense, it will be a miracle, Abby. Because right now I'm so nervous I can hardly think. Yesterday, Abby, I came home and I found, I don't know quite how to say this, I found my 15-year-old son putting on my makeup. He had lipstick on his lips, eyeshadow on his lids, and Abby, he was putting on mascara. Well... He acted embarrassed when he saw me. All he said was, I just wanted to see how I look. He was wearing his regular clothes, but he had his shoes and socks off. And Abby, later I found my high-heeled slippers under his bed. I do not understand things like this, Abby. What does it all mean? Signed, Perplexed. No, 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 no,
phone. Nobody gives a good dog on him, you know what? Nobody cares. Nobody weeps. Nobody knows you when you're down and out. Oh, they all come around with that sweet talk and smile. When you're standing pat and got plenty of green cabbage. Spending my money. Spending my money. I didn't care. I didn't care. Just threw it around. Taking my friends. Making my friends happy. And they all they loved it. Buying high price liquor. Buying hot dogs, drinks. Champagne and wine. Free cigar lighters. Just passing it around. To fall so low. Oh, I never knew you could fall so low. Didn't have no money and no place to no go. No place to go. If I ever get my if I ever get my go test. Hello, am I still there? There we go. Hello, gang. Nobody knows you when you're down and out. Let that be. I'd like to salute that perplexed mother out there tonight. And, uh, I don't quite know how Abby handled that one. She went to her right. However, uh, there's, uh, all kinds of things. Oh, speaking of, of, uh, of course, I, I consider this a symbolic movement of our time. I can imagine a lot of people reading that and saying, well, what's wrong with that? Nobody knows you <laughs> when you're down and out. I'd like to uh, point out here, we got a commercial before we go any further here. Hey, you know, speaking of great, this is a commercial for food, and I'm not going to plug this place that I'm about to plug until I finish telling you this. You're going to wonder probably why Shepard tonight is sounding as though he has sparkles in the eyes. Well, I had tonight... And uh, I believe once in a while in passing along a tip to the worthy. I had, and, I, and I assume that you would be worthy. Otherwise, you wouldn't be sitting out there in that crummy patty ears listening to this. At this hour of the night, you would be sitting in Sardis with your black glasses, winking at Suzanne Plachette. And, uh, you know, <laughs> you're here. So, you know, you must be worthy. Uh, tonight, I had one of my symbolic ritual dishes which I have about maybe twice a year because there is only one place in New York where you can get this. Not, of course, there must be others. 
In fact, I've had it in others. But when you get it in others, it's kind of second rate. How many of you have ever had, and I mean really done the way it should be done, which is to say marinated on a back porch for about a week until things begin to happen, marinated in rare spices and herbs of the Orient and rare elixirs. How many of you have ever had... I I, I get all nervous even when I think of just the word. Hassenpfeffer. I'll let that soak in, marinate for a minute. Well, tonight I had high... I think one day... When it's finally discovered, you know, when, when the authorities discover what Hassenpfeffer does to people, it will be illegal. I mean, you know, like pot and other great <laughs> discoveries of the human mind. Well, I had this Hassenpfeffer tonight, and I sat there for a minute, and I just stared at the ceiling. And uh, I knew that moment, that moment that they often discuss in Oriental religions, that moment of... Um, well, it's called many things. Uh, it's uh, it's that moment of uh, kismet. <laughs> I have contacted the infinite. And uh, there's this place, it's not a toy, it's on 44th Street. Some night later, and they only serve Hassenpfeffer about one month out of the year. It's served right around the first of the year, from around December 15th to about February 15th. Right? And it's the only place I know of. And they only make it in small quantities because of the nature of the dish. You know what is it, Hassenpfeffer? Well, friend, it ain't meatloaf. Let's just put it that way. It comes in a casserole with this magnificent sauce with the uh, spices floating in it, like uh, cloves and, uh, and, uh, cl- and uh, these little round ones. What are those round ones? Allspice. Floating around there, bobbing up and down, and bay leaves. <laughs> Ach, du lieber. Oh. And this place is on 44th Street. Now, I'm going to give you a tip. I'm, there's no commercial involved here. It's, but I'm serious. It's not a commercial. It's and I and I pay for my food there. It's between. In case you're interested, I'm just passing along. It's between Sixth and Seventh, right off of Times Square. Actually, between Broadway and Sixth. Not Times Square. Sixth and Seventh, you know, on 44th Street, and it's a German restaurant called the Blue Ribbon. And you go in there sometime, they're not, they're not on the show. You go in there sometime and you order Haas and Pfeffer. You better do it quick. It is fantastic. You better be prepared, though. Because I've known people, when they've encountered the real stuff, real Haas and Pfeffer, who arrive on the verge of, uh, have you ever heard the expression of uh, hysterical euphoria? Which means I've seen, I've seen grown men knock over tables. Knock the, fer- knock the ferns over just out of pure excitement. Lie on the floor and squeal. It's, uh, <laughs> it's terrible. And you get yourself you get yourself a nice half bottle of, of white, light German Rhine wine with that Hassenpfeffer, and you just don't care. I mean, it can bomb all... That reminds me, we got a real commercial here now. It's a real one. If you'd like another interesting food experience, and I mean it, Mandarin House, right now, this time of the year, is celebrating their Chinese New Year. And they have this traditional 10-course New Year banquet, Mandarin style. And you, you can understand why the Mandarins were run out of China when, uh, <laughs> when you eat this Mandarin food. Here's your chance to enjoy this big uh, New Year's tradition. It's, uh, every year, every New Year, Chinese New Year, they have a different feast that's traditional. It goes back thousands of years. And uh, this is the year 
of the Green Bay Packer lineman. Now, what is it? They name him after animals. It's a... Uh, <laughs> this, all right, I'll find, this, is, this, this is the year 4,666 in the Chinese lunar calendar, New Year type. And uh, this is the year of the... Uh, it is not the year of the goat. The year of the monkey? The cockroach. Someone wrote me. Well, every year is the year of the cockroach. However, uh, this is the year of the monkey. And if you would like to enjoy this feast... And they have to they have they have to set down a few guidelines because you have to call them a day in advance because it takes 24 hours to fix this. So you give them a call at uh, well here's the address the number call them at Watkins nine o five five one and they'll give you the dope. Now the two Mandarin houses one is on 13th Street in the Village, right off uh, well it's between Sixth and Seventh, and the other's on Second Avenue just north of 57th Street between 57th and 58th. Mandarin House East and Mandarin House. And the number is Watkins 90551. And don't ask them for Hassan Pfeffer, please. <laughs> I could see them Hassan Pfeffer with lychee nuts. However, this is, uh, that reminds me, this is WOR, lychee nuts. This is WOR, and uh, we're, this, we're your concern. This is your John Gambling Station here. And we're in the happy town here, old Funsville. Or half the city council looks like it's going to wind up in a slam. So would you please hit the button? Our Miller High Life can became jealous of our bottle. It was a matter of color, really. There was our world-famous crystal clear bottle with all that golden, gleaming Miller High Life showing through. There was the bottle, so inviting, appetizing, and downright distinctive. Well, our can developed what you might call a guilt complex. You understand, everyone liked the can, but it was hardly descriptive of the hearty, robust flavor of Miller High Life beer. So when this jealousy thing cropped up, the brewers of Miller High Life created Champagne Gold. Now the can is happy. Looks great in Champagne Gold. The next time you shop, remember to pick up Miller High Life in Champagne Golden cans. Very distinctive. Cold, bold, gold. We're kind of proud that Miller is the only one able to put the champagne of bottled beer in cans. Uh, pardon, gold cans. From the Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee. Nobody knows you when you're down and out. la da da ti ti ta da ta 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 da ti la da da ti ti ta da ta 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 Oh, oh, yes. Oh, oh, listen. I got to, This is Monday. Got to get a few things out of the way. To begin with, I want to tell you this. We had a night at the Raritan Valley Hospital. At Midis- well, actually, the show was held in the Middlesex High School Auditorium. That was one of the wildest nights I have spent in a long time. Wasn't it? It was a fantastic night. And I want... Now, now you listen to me now, Russ. I want all my co-workers here, my colleagues, to begin treating me with the proper respect. Oh, yes, that, that I'm going to demand that as of last Friday night, I was presented by Raritan Valley Hospital with a with a fantastic diploma, and I was made an honorary member of the medical staff. Of Raritan Valley Hospital, this is right. This is an honorary MD, friends. And I'm, t- I'm serious. This is under the state of... Uh, no, no kidding. There's no, no gag. Under the state of New Jersey with a seal, and it's signed by about 45 guys with, you know, all those numbers and things after their names, and it's in Latin... It says Vox Populum and all kinds of things on it. Be it all known to all who sunder and 
thereto and thereafter, and all who shall come into contact with all parties containing therein and forthwith to the pact now so torn asunder, and uh, all kinds of things, you know. And they presented me with, the, and they also presented me as part of this uh, honorary, this honorary honor. They presented me with one of these great things that Doctor Kildare wears on the top of his head. You know that round ashtray that hooks up there on the top of the head. And I have a gold stethoscope that's uh, got my name on it and all that. And so I have uh, set up practice down on the 20th floor. And uh, you'd be surprised who the first customer was. It was a sneaky mailboy came in. And he says, I think I've caught this little thing. I'd like you to... So uh, it's working out pretty good. And, uh, <laughs> oh, you never, you know, you hear, oh, yes, you know, we medical men, we hear all sorts of things. We don't talk much about it. And, uh, we see the seamier side of life. We also see the glories of life. And since we see both of those, we get those little crinkles around the eyes of a man who's been too close to the flame of truth. Both sides of the truth picture. So it was a, hey, I wonder if there's anybody out there tonight. I'm going to ask a, a leading question. Is there anybody out there tonight who was at that show? I'd just like to hear from just no oh, come on there's only three people up that was Jersey they're not up this hour so if there's only if, if there's anybody out there yeah call here and we'd like to talk to you about this thing one other thing happened in the after the show on a big riot and fist fights broke out and the, after this was after the police had gone uh, these kids came up on the stage a delegation and presented me with this magnificent this beautiful it was, it was one of the most beautiful wooden propellers I have ever seen in a magnificent state of preservation. And it was a U.S. government-issue propeller that had stamped on it 1941. And it was issued by the U.S. Army Air Corps. That was before it was the Air Force. It was U.S. Army Air Corps for use on PT-17 Stearman biplane trainers. And this beautiful baby and I just hung that. It was very embarrassing trying to explain that to the guy at the toll gate. When I came through with this propeller strapped to the top of my car, because, you know, they have a special, I suppose you know this, there's a special rate on the Jersey Turnpike for airplanes. They don't pay the same rate, and I came through there. And the way I drive, I came through the propeller in the front. The guy says, I'll be $40. And uh, it was just a nasty, it was a nasty night all the way around, but it was a great, <laughs> great night. Speaking of great nights, that, that uh, reminds me, and we better get on the stick with this, that uh, as of... Let's see. I'll, I'll read it right off my fact sheet here. Seton Hall. We're going to continue this harangue against the public. Seton Hall. We're going to be at Seton Hall. And we have obtained special Seton Hall permission to perform my underwater ballet there because it's a closed club, you know, this club thing. We can perform it, and we will not have any trouble with the authorities. So the stage is being wired up. We're getting all the plumbing and all that in. And uh, this uh, has overtones of Greek drama done uh, not necessarily tongue-in-cheek, but let us put it this way, it is the long view of Greek drama performed underwater in costume with ultraviolet light. Just beautiful. We use a Greek chorus with it. And uh, that will be at Seton Hall, and that's going to be Thursday night, February the 1st, that's this Thursday, at 8 p.m. in the Student Union Building, Seton Hall University. And unfortunately, they're in New Jersey. That's at South Orange, New Jersey. And there are tickets at the door. Okay? And uh, can they call anywhere over there to, to, to find out about tickets? They're all going to be sold at the door. 
Unfortunately, uh, this thing at Raritan Valley was all sold out. We had, uh, we, I got a letter from a guy who called in from Washington, D.C., and he says they wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't keep tickets or anything for him at the door. So it's going to be first come, first served at Seton Hall. And uh, we've got frozen grapes. We have, uh, I've hired some Nubian handmaidens for this show. And it should work out pretty good, actually. We have a roasted boar's head that we're going to use on the show. So it's going to work out. That's Seton Hall, friends. Thursday, February 1 at 8 o'clock. Student Union Building, Seton Hall, South Orange, New Jersey. Ticks at the door. Now, <laughs> if you notice an important thing in there, Lee, not one person who was at that show has called in. I don't blame them after what happened that night. Probably a heck of a lot of explaining, you know, went on over there. Speaking of explaining, did you did you read this story? This is one of the great stories. You know, man's continual battle against the machine goes on. And uh, we're all caught in it. There's no question about it. And uh, there's a little story out of nowhere. This is the kind of stuff you just don't hear on the newscast. But one of my spies sent me a story from New Orleans, which was clipped out of a New Orleans newspaper. And uh, I think it bears also putting into the vast file of trivia that the machine, you see, the machine, uh, sometimes, has it occurred to your friends that even though people often talk about the machine as killing man and uh, killing his ingenuity and killing his uh, sense of place and identity and rightness and et cetera, et cetera, the machine can also be very kind. But some machines are very kind. And it's very rare that you, you meet a person who's kind. I don't know many people who have forbearance and kindness and tolerance not when it comes to the nitty-gritty. But listen to this one from New Orleans. And uh, one of my little spies sent it. He says, uh, what a great day it was for police reporter Jack Dempsey. This is his name. He took on the new police intoximeter down in uh, New Orleans. They got one of these things, you know, to tell whether you're, whether you're potted in the uh, local jug, you know, if you've been driving. And he took it on. And his name is Jack Dempsey. Our hero, and I'm quoting from the local New Orleans paper, our hero, ever ready to help science, agreed to have a few drinks to check the new $1,595 photoelectric device used to determine whether a suspect has had one or more too many. The opening round of the nine-hour battle was cautious. Dempsey ingested two glasses of beer at a local bar. He brought along a can of beer in case he had to wait a bit, and sure enough, he did. So he knocked down three beers. But when the reporter for the state's item, New Orleans newspaper, wheezed into the machine, you know, they make you breathe into this thing. <laughs> he wheezed into the machine. They waited. The meters clicked. The little arms went all over the place and wrote stuff on those scrolls. You know how they do in those machines. And when the answer came back, it said he had not had a drink in weeks. Back to the bar he went. Five strong whiskey highballs. He came back and wheezed into the machine. And it still said zero. Back to the bar. He had eight martinis. Now count that up, friends. Three beers, five whiskey highballs, eight martinis. He came back and breathed into the machine. And the machine said, stone sober. Testing officer Aloysius Highburst sought out an inmate of the drunk tank whose breath could scale paint at six paces. He agreed to give it a try. The meter read 1.5, indicating slight intoxication. And everything's working pretty good. So he said to the reporter, you're just not drunk yet. 
Go out and have a few more drinks. We'll see how it's working. Well, sir, several hours and 11 drinks later. Now, remember, friends, he had eight martinis, five whiskey highballs, three beers, and now he had 11 more drinks. He carefully navigated, and having a little trouble on the corners and with high crosswinds, he carefully navigated back to the testing room and was helped into the seat by, <laughs> by, his, by his assistant. He wheezed into the machine. Zero. Stone sober. The police all sat around and smoked their cigars and looked at the books and at the bars on the wall. And then they put reporter Dempsey back in a taxi cab and sent him home. And later on, a police reporter, a police spokesman said the reason it didn't work was because Dempsey was a newspaper man. <laughs> he says newspaper men are not fit subjects as to tell whether a guy's drunk or not. <laughs> All right, hold on there. I think we got this, this victim in there. Hello, wait here. Let's see if he's there. Yeah, hello there. Yeah. Oh, yeah, well, that uh, you were one of those guys that gave me that propeller? Yeah, you, yeah, you were the tall, skinny guy. How'd that show go? Wasn't that a wild show there? Uh, is he on the air there? Oh, it's sticky out, yeah. yeah. Uh, listen, uh, hello, hello. Yeah, yeah, you, you, you still there? Oh, of course, I hang in there. How'd that show go? Oh, you should do that more often. You ought to come back again. That was a wild show, wasn't it? What? That was a wild show, wasn't oh, it? Oh, yeah. You know, I especially liked it when those two MDs got into a fist fight in the back there. Oh, yeah. And the police took them out. Yeah, and that old lady hey, fainted. Yeah. you your uh, Saturday night program? Yeah. The little flute? Uh, oh, yeah. That drove me crazy. <laughs> you like that? Oh, that was beautiful. Well, you know, we have not heard. You know, it's what. You know what's so interesting about that that uh, experiment we did Saturday night with that uh, with that Dyak death flute? Do you know that since that night, our rating, according to uh, rating services, dropped over seventy four points, and there was widespread absenteeism in all the schools throughout the New Jersey, New York, Connecticut area. Mysterious, yeah. Oh, wow. Well, the kids were dropping like flies. Oh, I can imagine that. It's just a terrible thing. Did anything happen to you on that? Oh, I just went crazy. Yeah? Well, any, any of your hamsters around there die or anything? No, but I know it's one of the cats went wild. Ah, well, all right. I, I wouldn't put too much dough on that cat uh, next week. It's... It was a male, too. Yeah, 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 right in the fighting age, huh? That's right. <laughs> okay, man, that was a beautiful prop. Yeah. Steerman, huh? Yeah, it was beautiful. Yeah. I had to... Refinish it. Goes all cruddy. Oh, it's just. Where'd you get it? I got it off a friend of mine. I, you know, I'm an airplane nut too. And I turned around in his house and wow, there's this thing staring at me. And uh, I said, Hey, can I have it? He said, Sure, take it. Well, it's it's beautiful. That uh, you know, I I thre already threatened the head of the sales department with it. Yeah. Yeah, I won't tell you how. Oh. Okay. Okay. All right, hang in, man. Right. <laughs> what a night that was. I'll tell you. You know, uh, speaking of, of great nights, uh, and this guy trying the, t the drunk meter, uh, I don't know whether that 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 uh, that view of mankind uh, amuses you as much as it does me. But I saw I saw an incident exactly like that happen that, that did not have much to do with the pro side of life. Did you hear this story? Here's another one that came out. Speaking of man's battle against the machine, this came out of Reno, and uh, I quote. Well, I get in 
front of a couple of machines and I feed and I pull and I feed and I pull and I get a kind of a rhythm going. The faster you play, the more you get. And the first thing you know, you got a brassiere stuffed with currency and a set of shin guards made out of C notes. That's the end of the quote. <laughs> no, there is dialogue, friends, that, that, that Damon Runyon could never have conceivably written. Now, that's the real thing. I'm going to read this dialogue. You know, uh, I, I go to a lot of movies and plays, and I do a lot of writing myself, and people always talk about dialogue. And I say this. I feel that dialogue is my personal feeling as a writer here. I feel that dialogue says more about people than any amount of descriptive work you can do about those same people. And any attempt, because I think speech and the way people use speech really is the final statement about themselves, about the place they came from, the world they grew out of. How many times have you seen somebody use speech so carefully, so uh, with such a great importance placed on correct usage? And you know these people have come out of a very shaky background, and they're trying to cover up. They usually think it's the other way. Every time I get I get a letter from somebody who complains about a word that I mispronounced, <laughs> or I use I use the wrong the wrong syntax, I look very carefully and I notice somewhere someplace there is a telltale thumb smudge that that, that shows something very interesting about this person. In fact, I remember uh, one of the first things that I, I noticed about being around people who have been born to the purple. I mean, really born to the purple. I'm talking about people who have no doubt about where they stand. And if they wanted to, I mean, if they really got bugged, if they wanted to, they could fire the world. You know, that kind of people. They could just do away with Ohio if, they, if, if, if it offended them. Well, the, one of the first things I noticed about these people is the atrocious use of English language because they don't have to worry. They just lay it out. And so they use, they use words that in the... Uh, I suppose you might say the rising, mobile, middle-class world where people are attempting to rise, uh, words which they would completely ignore, like ain't. Ain't is used constantly in the top echelons. Ain't that a shame, Charlie? And it turns out that this is a man who is a Rhodes Scholar and his father owns Oxford. Uh, <laughs> and and four-letter words? Oh, let me tell you, friends, I learned some four-letter words in the higher echelon that even Chaucer would have worried about using. They were beyond the pale, so to speak. But listen to this beautiful, this, this magnificent statement. I'm going to read it to you just the way it was written. I get in front of a couple of machines, and I feed, and I pull, and feed, and pull, and get a rhythm going. The faster you play, the more you get. And the first thing you know, you got a brassiere stuffed with currency and a set of shin guards made out of C notes. A set of shin guards made out of C notes. You do, and I go on now, you do, that is, if you're Mrs. Ann Clark, who tackled the new $5 slot machines in Harold's Club in Reno with a $20 stake and staggered away 10 hours later, get this, friends, with a cool $13,750. Do you realize how many times you got to pull the big handle on a slot machine to walk away with 13750 bucks. 
<laughs> she had a she had a shin guard made out of C notes. Now I'm going to continue with her dialogue. After I get my brassiere full, I stuffed one hundred dollar bills into the tops of my stockings until they were running down my legs. <laughs> I mean that's a way to describe it. She said as anyone, I'm reading the article here now, as anybody with gambling experience knows, you can't beat the house percentage playing the slot machines. But you cannot prove that by Mrs. Clark. She says she has been bucking the one-armed bandits at Harold's Club with consistent success since 1963 and has the bucks to prove it. Mrs. Clark, who runs a dress shop in Vancouver, British Columbia, told an interviewer, I've got $12,000 worth of Harold Club money in a bank at home marked Reno Money. I usually carry $2,000 down here with me, and I only play with what I come down with. The rest is in safe deposit, and I can't get to it. Mrs. Clark says she plays Harold's Club about four times a year. She started in 1963 after surviving an illness which required three operations. Health restored, quote, I decided I'd do something silly. I thought I'd come to Reno and gamble. Mrs. Clark said she left Reno the first time with a profit of 560 bucks. She made another $3,900 in the spring of 1964, clipped the machines for $4,900 a few months later, and cleared $3,300 on a two-day Christmas visit. She said that she had a losing year in 65. She lost $1,700 in one year. So she has run her original $20 investment into 450 bucks with small winnings, then hit jackpots, Listen, jackpots of $5,000, $750, $5,000, $750, and then simultaneously 750 bucks jackpots on each of two machines pulled simultaneously. Oh, what a maniac. <laughs> she poo-pooed cynical suggestions that the club had softened up the newly introduced $5 machines on the theory that a big killing was good advertising. What do you mean? I'm just lucky, she said. Hmm. <laughs> Mrs. Clark says she turned to dressmaking after a professional stage career, which included a stint as a, as a Ziegfeld Follies girl in New York. Uh, she says, quote, My age... Well, oh, hell, I'm 63, but put it down in the late 50s, she said, and she left, wearing her shin guards made out of C-notes. <laughs> well, let me tell you, you know, this, this lady here sounds like, you know, pure fiction. But when I, when I thought of Mrs. Clark, I remember, um, I, I suppose this is one of the advantages of coming from a neighborhood where almost everybody knows everybody else. But we had a lady in our neighborhood who uh, was the gambling lady in the neighborhood. And uh, she wore dresses. I can remember my mother peeking out between two uh, ecru-colored curtains. You know, those curtains, those lace curtains that hang down in the front. You know, that smell, that peculiar musty smell that they got. And my mother looking out, and there she goes down the street, this lady. And she wore these tight dresses that were so tight you could hear her thrumming. And for blocks away, you could just hear, you know, she, the, there's a certain kind of a fat lady who thinks she looks thin if she wears very, very tight dresses. And as a matter of fact, what it generally does to most fat ladies, it makes them look like a Hebrew national salami with feet. And uh, <laughs> she's going down the street there. 
and she has very tight dresses and and she, very short. She always wears them very short. And uh, her her son was named Bobby. I remember little Bobby. Bobby was always you know he's part of our crowd. We're always out there playing ball and stuff. And I remember my mother saying, "There she goes." And Mrs. Bruner peeking out. There she goes. And you know where she's going? She's going down to play the horses. Well, I'm a little kid, see. And the idea of people going down to play the horses had a peculiar, mysterious... Because we didn't have any horses in our neighborhood. There was no big A. As you know, here in New York City, playing the horses is a, is a kind of a citywide n- 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 phenomenon. They, they play the horses here. I, I couldn't believe when I heard that, that they'll run them out at Roosevelt Raceway when the temperature is 15 below zero. And, you know, the horses are not running around the track. They're walking stiff-legged around the track. <laughs> Wearing their earmuffs, but those—that—that's uh, you know—that's no longer racing, friends. That's something else again. Did you see this, the the picture on TV the other night of the driver that somehow got thrown off the uh, the little sulky, and he wound up finish, finishing the race sitting on the back of the horse? Did you see that one? Finish, came all the way under. The, but this this is a this is not a, a nationwide phenomenon. They in some places they do not know about playing the horses, and anybody that plays the horses is uh, very exotic. This is a very exotic thing. And I remember my mother peering out, saying, there she goes, playing the horses. And where is poor Mr. Anderson today? Mm Mm-hmm. At the roundhouse, slaving away. And where's poor little Bobby? Mm Mm-hmm. Hasn't had a new pair of shoes since last spring. And she's going off to play the horses. And she was that kind of fat lady that walked with little short, quick steps. You know, with the high-heeled shoes. And you'd see her, very jovial, little round-faced lady. And off she goes. She played the horses. But let me tell you this. Everybody in the neighborhood played Kino. Did you ever hear of Kino? You don't know what, you don't know what is it, Kino? Well, Kino and Bank Night were the two big nights down at the Orpheum Theater. And Kino, when uh, they had Kino, see, they had this Tarzan picture, some movie that would, they'd rent for about $2 a week. And uh, they'd say, uh, tonight, big night, a uh, revival by popular demand, uh, Tarzan and the Apes. You know, <laughs> popular demand. Uh, Johnny Weissmanner and Tarzan and the Apes. And, of course, they went this for three cents or something like that a night, a performance. And it says, big Kino, live, on stage. Well, Kino, when you went down there to play Kino, when you walk into the theater, and, all, and my mother would bring all the kids and everybody, because the more cards you have, there's a thing about cards in this game. The more cards you have, the chance you, better chance you have of winning. And so me and my kid brother and Junior Bruner and Schwartz and all of them, the mothers are all down there playing Keno every night. Well, Keno, you walk into the walk into the show, and they hand you a little card. It's got little blue and white squares. You know, kind of like a little uh, look like what it looks like is a little linoleum block with blue and white squares, with numbers like B12, G7, L8, written all over the thing of it. And you get this card, and you sit there, they give you a handful of corn. And then, uh, after the first big showing of Tarzan and the Apes, and everybody's sort of waiting and chewing on their candy and stuff, the lights would go on, and on the screen would come this enormous pointer. The same kind of pointers that they use in these games like... uh, 
races, you know, little games you play, parlor games, you spin a little pointer. And uh, but on this one was big. I, that always fascinated me as a little kid. I never could figure out how they got such a big pointer. But it was an enormous pointer. It covered the whole screen. It had this great big pointer, and all the way around it were numbers like B7, G8, A4, all the way around this thing. And out on the stage would come Leopold Doppler. Mr. Doppler, who ran the whole show, he ran the Orpheum Theater, and he was connected. He knew Cary Grant, and he knew you know, Fred Astaire, and there was a lot of rumors around that he'd had this thing with Ginger Rogers. Oh, you know, he's in showbiz because every week we would get this flyer they'd throw up on a porch. would say, Leopold Doppler presents. And on each side of his name, it was written in this great big scroll, Leopold Doppler, you know, like David Belasco or Otto Preminger presents. Leopold Doppler presents. And next to his name on each side were these two little masks, you know, one mask grinning, you know, the Greek mask, the other mask was crying. Leopold Doppler presents Ginger Rogers. Well, anybody that presents Ginger Rogers is a big man. And so old Leopold get up there. He looked like, a, he looked like an undertaker. A little short, thin guy. I'll tell you what he looked like. Donald Crisp. And he had this black suit. And he had a microphone shaped like a bullet. One of these silver microphones. And Leopold Doppler would stand on the stage and he would say, Ladies and gentlemen. All right, now be quiet up there in the balcony, you kids. Ladies and gentlemen. The Orpheum Theater once again presents a gala evening of Kino. And now do you have all your cards ready? And there was this guy that played the organ. And uh, he had these teeth, and he had this wavy hair, and the organ would come out of the floor, and it had sparkly things all over it. And he played fanfares. He'd say, and now, prepare to play Kino. And the organ would go, Leopold Doppler was pure showbiz all the way down to his toes. I mean, he was such a showman... He made Barry Farber look like a garage mechanic. I mean, there was showmanship. Da, 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 da. And now, prepare your cards. Hold your corn ready. When you get a completed line, call out loud and clear. Else we will go on to the next big Kino spin. Are you ready? Da, 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 da. Spin the pointer. And up in the booth, someone would spin the pointer. And you'd see this pointer go... And then it would stop. And Leopold Doppler would say, B7. And you'd hear all this corn dropping. People yelling and hollering in the back. <laughs> and then the pointer would spin again. Well, one night, this thing had gotten up to about 1750 bucks. After about 45 weeks of playing Kino, no one had won the grand prize. Every night they had the grand prize spinning, the win. And who do you think won one night? That's right, the lady with the tight dress. She took all the marbles. Two months after that, she won bank night. And as far as I know, she cleaned out the horses at Homestead Park. And everybody in the neighborhood said... Oh, she's going to go to hell. Poor Bobby. Poor Mr. Anderson. Well, what Mrs. Anderson did, she took all her winnings and built a chain of restaurants in Florida. She now owns half of the Keys. As far as I know, she has a 67-foot cabin cruiser and is negotiating to buy Venezuela. They're still waiting in the neighborhood for her comeuppance as they go nightly still to the Orpheum to play keynote.
Hang loose, gang. Think a few dirty thoughts to keep your mind in condition. Well, you can think of things like, uh, oh, uh, shucks, I can't think of one. Doggone it. That's what happens when you're exposed to the Bobsy twins too early in life. All you can think of, gee, wouldn't it be fun to go to Grandma's house and have some hot chocolate and uh, ride on the sled and throw snowballs? Gee, it would be fun, wouldn't it?